Support for the show comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you may need Indeed. Indeed is a matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Listeners of this show can get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Businesses count on IT heroes to save the day every day. And whether you're going into your office or working from home, you need an integrated PC solution. You need the unrivaled Built for Business PC platform that gives you performance, security, manageability, and stability for your entire PC fleet. The Intel vPro platform. It helps you take care of business and can remotely update, restore, and secure your PCs even if a system is outside of the firewall. Intel vPro, built for what IT heroes do. Built for business. No product can be absolutely secure. Learn more at intel.com slash IT heroes. From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. On today's special episode of Stay Tuned, I am joined by two guests. Both happen to be named Glasser. First, New Yorker staff writer and CNN global affairs analyst Susan Glasser joins me for a discussion about the war in Ukraine. Vladimir Putin doesn't just walk away when backed into a corner, and he escalates and he escalates, and he's not hesitant to use the kinds of military force that we think of as as absolutely abhorrent. Then we delve into free speech with Ira Glasser, who served as the executive director of the ACLU from 1978 all the way until 2001. The driving passion that brought me to the ACLU was racial justice. That was the most important, my most important issue growing up, and that was what I cared most about during the years I was at the ACLU. So every time I defended somebody's right to say racist things, I was obligated to defend their right to say it, but I was also obligated to disagree with what they said. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Mint Mobile. For a lot of folks, smartphones are a necessary expense. So if there's an option for you to pay a little less money and pay it less often, well, that just might be worth taking. Mint Mobile offers premium wireless plans that range from three months to six months to a whole year. So you don't need to worry about a monthly bill. And they're affordable. Their plans start at just 15 bucks a month and you get unlimited talk and text and 5G data. They have great rates whether you're buying for one or for a family. And at Mint, family plans start at just two lines. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash preet. That's mintmobile.com slash preet. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash preet. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for this show comes from DraftKings Sportsbook. The big game is almost here, and DraftKings Sportsbook has you covered with a brand new offer. New customers can bet on the big game and turn 5 bucks into 200 instantly in bonus bets. 
Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code PREET. New customers can bet 5 bucks to get 200 instantly in bonus bets. Only on DraftKings Sportsbook. An official sports betting partner of Super Bowl 58 with code PREET. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas. 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash football for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and response. Gaming resources. Hey folks, Preet here. I have an exciting announcement. On Thursday evening, March 31st, we're bringing Stay Tuned to New York City's Town Hall for our first in-person show since before the pandemic. Yes, I said in person. I'll be joined by actor and producer Ben Stiller. As always, I'll answer audience questions and reflect on the latest news making the headlines. You won't want to miss it. Join me, Ben, and your fellow fans by heading to cafe.com slash events to get your tickets. That's cafe.com slash events. I really hope to see you there. As the world's eyes are focused on Ukraine, Russia has intensified its attacks on cities across the country, including on civilian life. A UN refugee agency forecasts that up to a million people could flee Ukraine for neighboring countries in the coming days. Meanwhile, President Putin finds himself increasingly isolated as U.S. and international allies join forces to rally around President Zelensky and the Ukrainian people. In his State of the Union address on Tuesday night, President Biden assailed Putin and promised retaliation. Putin has unleashed violence and chaos. But while he may make gains on the battlefield, he'll pay a continuing high price over the long run. Susan Glasser has spent many years reporting from Russia, where she served as Moscow's co-bureau chief for The Washington Post. She was also previously editor-in-chief of Foreign Policy magazine. She now writes for The New Yorker and is CNN's global affairs analyst. Susan Glasser, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So we're about a week into the Ukraine crisis. And after about a week, it seems to me that no one predicted we would be at this point. Putin got it wrong. The experts seem to, seem to have gotten it wrong. I don't know if Joe Biden got it wrong. And the key question, or one of the key questions to me and to other people is, we used to think, well, how bad is the world order going to be and the European order going to be if Putin succeeds in a quick blitz and takes over a sovereign, independent country like Ukraine? And now it seems to be the issue that people are worried about is what happens when Putin continues to fail to do the thing that we thought he was going to do quickly, is a losing Putin more scary and worrisome than a, than a winning Putin? What do you think about that? Well, short answer, right? The crisis is, is a week old and also 20 years in the making. And yes. so I think part of the, the thing that's so alarming to people who've been following this whole two-decade arc is Vladimir Putin doesn't just walk away when backed into a corner and he escalates and he escalates and he's not hesitant to use the kinds of military force that we think of as as absolutely abhorrent and so that's what does that one, mean what does that mean what does that mean susan you're because you're scared you're scaring me 
Well, first of all, it means uh, devastating uh, European cities in Kiev, uh, Kharkiv. Who knows? He might even go after Lviv uh, in the West. I don't think so, but it's possible. Uh, it means leveling them. Uh, look at a picture of Grozny. Look at a picture of Aleppo after the Russian military was done with it. And I don't think people have fully absorbed uh, what that will feel like and what it means politically and geopolitically. So that's number one is Putin is an escalator. Number two, regime survival has always been his biggest priority. And that's why you're seeing an enormous domestic crackdown inside Russia. It accompanies his aggression. It outside the country. It always has. And to the extent that Putin genuinely has backed himself into a situation where his own survival as Russia's leader is threatened, well, that's his red line. And that takes us into a whole different realm of uh, escalation. So what's he waiting for? Why isn't Kiev already leveled? <laughs> well, first of all, it is only a week into the campaign. Uh, and remember that Kiev held out during World War II against the Nazis for more than a month. And, uh, you know, even the U.S. blitzkrieg toward Baghdad, which included shock and awe air superiority, took a few days. So it's, it's way too early to draw military conclusions, especially because of what I just said, which is that Vladimir Putin is willing to take measures that many other leaders, even in a war situation, are not. And so... What we're looking to see right now is evidence that they're adjusting their battle plan and their tactics because of the initial failed blitzkrieg type assault on uh, Ukraine cities. And there's some evidence that they're doing that. They're beginning bombardment of the cities, attacking civilian areas, uh, using more firepower that they held out of the fight the first few days. So if they do that, then we'll see if that meets with more success. What's going on with this convoy? that we keep hearing about? Yeah, I, you know, that is quite a visual. And I think, you know, it underscores one very odd fact of this war so far, which is uh, the air, the skies have remained contested, but neither side seems to have dominated in a way you might expect, right? If Ukraine was still in charge of the airspace, you would imagine that they would just, uh, it's a sitting duck type target, right? So why not just eviscerate it? So clearly they don't either have the resources or the access or both to do that. Uh, if Russia were truly unchallenged, though, you wouldn't be seeing continued evidence of uh, literally fighter jet dogfights dog in the skies, uh, which the military analysts are continuing to report. So, uh, you know, is that an invasion column? Is it a sign of Russia's uh, screwed up logistics and uh, they don't have, you know, the, the capacity or the fuel or whatever to keep going? It may be all of the above. Can we get into Putin's brain a little bit more? Yeah. By all accounts, he seems to be more isolated than ever before. That's even reflected in these pictures we get of him sitting at like a 30-foot-long table. Like the table's as long as the convoy, it seems like. Yeah, that's right. It's, uh, you know, talk about Kremlinology. I, You know, when we grew up, right, in the Cold War, you and I pre it's like I remember, you know, people talk about Kremlinology and how the CIA was filled with analysts who were, you know, counting who was, uh, how many people were on the podium at the Kremlin for the annual May Day parade and, you know, right, who right. was sitting next to whom. And, you know, here we are, we're right back to that. We have had very little, I think, accurate uh, understanding in recent years of uh, Putin and how he makes decisions and who's influential. But the visuals are incredible. 
They show us a man in extreme isolation, uh, willing to berate subordinates, including the head of the GRU, the Russian Foreign Intelligence Spy Service, sorry, the SVR, uh, right on camera. Uh, and what does that tell us? Uh, it tells us he wants to assert dominance as a very traditional, uh, macho male Russian posturing, uh, demonstrations, not just of strength, but of over the top caricatured type strength, but also of a, a feeling of some vulnerability. Is he going to play hockey anytime soon? <laughs> well, my guess is uh, now all maybe, his support. Maybe he can are, shoot like nine goals. And, and well, he he'll have to invite Lukashenko from uh, Belarus, uh, <laughs> also famous for playing hockey, and then uh, you know force Lukashenko to throw the game to him. So clearly, Putin underestimated Ukraine, the people. He underestimated Zelensky. He underestimated the alliance of the Europeans and the rest of the West. He underestimated, I think, probably what some corporations would do. You have. Finland, Sweden, even Switzerland doing things that probably a couple of weeks ago wouldn't have been predicted. You have Germany deciding after decades of being encouraged and urged to do so, finally increasing its defense budget to over 2% of GDP. My question is, the fact that he's so miscalculated and underestimated all these parties, what does that say about, in your mind, the advice he's getting going forward now that he finds himself a little bit in the hole? Yeah, I think that's a great question because, you know, like all dictators who've been in power for a long time, uh, it's not only increasing isolation, but it seems that Vladimir Putin has begun to believe his own propaganda. And, you know, he used to joke uh, in college, but I think it's relevant to this here. You know, you're really in trouble when you start lying to yourself and believing it. And he has told himself some lies that are crazy about Ukraine. He he has a vision of the collapse of the Soviet Union that has created a worldview of grievance and revenge and the idea that he will be the great modern day czar who will essentially revise the unacceptable terms as he sees them of the post-Cold War peace, uh, that the Soviet Union was forced to break up by hostile external forces and, uh, you know, it was at the barrel of a gun as he saw it. And now Russia is strong again and he's not going to accept it. And he doesn't accept the legitimacy of Ukraine as an independent state. And, you know, it's for me, the idea that there would be a Jewish president of Ukraine after that country's horrific history of pogroms and anti-Semitic violence and the killing fields of the Nazis literally bombed yesterday uh, by Putin himself and Bobby Yar. And the idea that Ukraine would have overcome its past enough to have a Jewish president like Zelensky and then to have Vladimir Putin claim that he's quote unquote liberating Ukraine from its Nazi leader the Jewish president. I mean, it, this is just a man who is delusional. Right, but does he really believe that or does he know it's BS and that's the propaganda he's intentionally putting forward? I never understand. What What do you think he believes and what do you think he understands is nonsense? You know, that is a great question, uh, not just for Putin, but for many of those public figures who uh, spew BS <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> at us uh, in the United States and, and, and elsewhere. Yeah. Um, I think that he does not think that Vladimir Zelensky is an actual Nazi, and that is propaganda. Uh, I think that he does, however, truly and deeply believe that Ukraine and Russia are one country and more or less one people. 
uh, and that it's his refusal to accept the legitimacy of Ukraine as a, as a separate entity that is at the base of this. So I believe that he believes that. Yes. Well, here's another thing that he's said and done. He's put his nuclear capability on more active alert. The United States did not match that, didn't increase the DEFCON level. Was that the right thing to do in response? And how seriously should we take Putin's repeated references to his nuclear arsenal? Yeah, so this is a question, as you might imagine, that has just been gripping, you know, the small world of people who who pay attention to to Russia and nuclear issues for days. And I have to say, it's been an alarming series of conversations. Uh, I've heard in part because it actually is Russian military doctrine uh, to include the potential use of what we might call uh, tactical nuclear weapons, battlefield nukes. Uh, I think the experts call it non-strategic weapons. Uh, that is part of their doctrine. In fact, their annual uh, military exercises, the Zapid exercises, Zapid means West, by the way, uh, in Russian, uh, have included scenarios uh, whereby uh, it escalates to the use of tactical nuclear weapons. So it's not some crazy thing that's invented. Uh, and uh, the flip side is, I think for Vladimir Putin, it's that that nuclear status has been a part of his rhetoric and of his grievance field narrative about the West uh, for as long as I can remember. So it's not the first time he's used uh, nuclear saber rattling preach. So that's one thing. Uh, and it, it's really generally served as a kind of petulant reminder of Russia's superpower status and don't treat us as just some pointless regional power, as Barack Obama referred to Russia, because uh, those nukes ought to give them status and uh, prestige on the world stage. So it's not the first time he's resorted to this kind of rhetoric, but in this situation where miscalculation is so extremely possible, I think it's much more worrisome than I've, than I've ever heard it. Well, that's, that's comforting, Susan. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, they, he's at war with us, Preet, whether we're at war with him or not, right? So that's the thing that's the most scary is not even, you know, this sort of strategic, non-strategic weapons thing. It's the idea that for Putin, we may have already crossed his red line, right? So I think President Biden, other Western leaders have been very focused and correctly so on trying to message to Moscow, listen, we are not sending our troops in. We're not going to war with you. We understand and we don't want to risk World War III. However, in Putin's mind, there's the possibility by sending so much military aid that he possibly didn't expect from Europe, uh, you know, this issue of our fighter jets going to come from Poland or not. This could, in his mind, constitute NATO attacking him, even if we don't see it as that. And that's where things get really scary. Yeah, no, it does. Let me ask you about President Zelensky for a moment. He's become, for good reason, a hero and a model of courage uh, and patriotism in his country, and he's rallied the people of Ukraine. Does Vladimir Putin, you think, and I realize these questions are difficult because you're not Vladimir Putin, thankfully, and it requires some mind reading, but do you think he wants Zelensky dead or just removed? What would happen if Zelensky is martyred in some way by Russian forces? When you start a war, the facts on the ground change things. And a week ago, Vladimir Zelensky was not an international badass hero. And now he is. 
And I think that changes things. There's credible reports from U.S. intelligence uh, and others. The Ukrainians have said publicly that uh, the Russians were, in fact, mounting an assassination plot, that their goal was to decapitate the Ukrainian government and to replace it with a puppet government. That does appear to be what their plan was. Certainly, it's consistent with the Russian playbook we've seen in other places at other times, historically. So uh, I don't doubt that Putin started out with the goal of ousting the government in Kiev and getting rid of Zelensky however he could. But the, the thing is, is that a week ago, President Zelensky was not uh, a global icon and uh, a decapitation strike on the government seems like a much more escalatory and inflammatory thing. Now, of course, it always would have been, uh, but... I just it's 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 rare that the world gets to see the kind of heroism and defiance and leadership that we're seeing right now from uh, essentially an ordinary person. Yeah. Well, he was a comedian and I'm seeing all his old clips, including the Ukrainian dancing with the stars. Did you see that? Isn't that unbelievable? That pink jumpsuit. (laughs) (laughs) But part of part of what has gone wrong for Putin, happily for the rest of us, is because he's moved in slow motion and it's taken a week to even get to this point, you know, the, the, the suspense has built and the record has been made of heroism, not just on the part of Zelensky, but also the military folks. I mean, you know, ordinary citizens who are arming themselves and who are chanting about their own country and their independence and who are taunting and yelling at the Russian soldiers saying, this is, these are our streets, this is our city, this is our country. And it takes a while sometimes for these scenes to sink in to the minds and hearts of the rest of the world and that's been allowed to happen. If he had gone in and in two days, you know, sewn it all up, you know, the world wouldn't have reacted in the same way. And it seems to me there's a snowball effect that, you know, at first people were skeptical about what sanctions would do and whether they would hold. Now you got everybody coming out of the woodwork, you know, random companies, not random companies, but companies, BP and others, everyone wants to get in on, it seems to me, because it's the right, good, moral, popular thing to do. Everyone wants to get in on punishing Russia in some way. Was that expected at all? I think you're seeing exactly what you said—a pile-on effect. Uh, look at look at the Republicans. Uh, this is a you know classic example. Oh yes, <laughs> you know. Let's talk about the. Okay, so like right, like one week ago, Putin is a genius, says the leader of their party. Uh, he's savvy. He's brilliant. He's getting Ukraine for just a couple dollars worth of sanctions. Uh, you know, their propagandists are repeating and amplifying this message. You know, either what is. Ukraine have to do with me or, you know, Putin is my hero because he's a, you know, international conservative warrior or something. Uh, and so now they're all, you know, put yellow and blue flags on their Twitter icons. You know, I mean, it's, it's incredible. But you said something, you wrote something very interesting just this morning. You wrote about the State of the Union address. I want to hear what you say. I want to hear what you think about it before we go. But you said the Republicans all now seem this, I'm paraphrasing, the Republicans all now seem to stand with Ukraine but not with Biden. How interesting is that? Yeah, no, that's, that's, I've been really struck by that. And of course, that is a sign of uh, a divide and a crisis inside our own democracy, which by the way, I think this is so important for people to understand. That is a part of what almost certainly informed Putin's miscalculation here. He listened to this rhetoric for years 
from Donald Trump. He watched Tucker. He watched, he watched Fox News. I don't know, you know, but he, he, he believes and he's not incorrect that America is a society that is weakened, that is divided against itself, uh, that has had, uh, two years of a pandemic in which almost a million Americans have died, uh, despite the vaccine. And, uh, you know, he's listened to Biden say essentially, I'm not that concerned. That was Biden's focus at the beginning of his presidency was on just sort of putting Russia in a box, creating a, quote, stable and predictable, unquote, relationship so that he could pivot to Asia and focus on the challenge from China. And so Biden and Trump, in a way, Putin took in this idea of the crisis of American democracy. And we can't even have accountability for those who stormed our own capital on January 6th. So what do we care about storming somebody else's capital? And I think that is a key part. There's a guy running for Senate who I think is horrifying and has had an about face. J.D. Vance, as you know, said five days ago, what do I care what happens to Ukraine? And the other crazy thing, further to what you were saying a second ago, is not only does Putin see the divisiveness, if he looks at any of the polling, and I think you cite to this also in your piece, Vladimir Putin pulls better among Republicans, one of the two major parties in this country, he pulls better among Republicans than Joe Biden does. So how can you blame him for thinking that, you know, a swath of the American public would be with him on this? Because people say they don't care what happens to Ukraine, and a lot of them find him to be powerful and strong and a better leader than their own duly elected president. It's kind of nuts. Yeah, I mean, and look, by the way, Preet, this is not one week in the making. This is years in the making. The reason that Joe Biden is more unpopular with Republicans than Vladimir Putin, that's a metric I've been tracking for a number of years. It's not just happened in the last few weeks. It's the president, the former president of the United States, praising Vladimir Putin over and over again, telling his voters that not only was Putin not a threat, uh, but that we should reach accommodation with him. Uh, and again and again, praising his leadership, his strength, uh, his even his quote-unquote values. And uh, this had a corrosive effect. And what it showed was the ability of one of America's two major political parties to have not a majority, perhaps, but a very large faction of that party become not just not anti-Putin, but pro-Putin. And that's something that's really hard to imagine. I mean, you know, we've had figures like Trump and Tucker Carlson in the past, but they were never in a position of power and control over an entire political party. Charles Lindbergh was an outside figure when he was leading the America First movement before the Second World War and praising uh, Hitler and saying we should come to accommodation with him. Uh, he never was the leader of the Republican Party. Quickly before you have to go and expound your wisdom on many other outlets, what did you make of Joe Biden's State of the Union address specifically on the issue of Ukraine? Did he spend too much time on it, not enough time on it? Was he strong on it? What's your assessment? I think Biden has been clear-eyed and strong since this crisis began. I think they did an extraordinary amount of diplomatic heavy lifting to get the Europeans in advance on board with sanctions, uh, to warn the world very clearly in a very unusual way, actually, using real-time American intelligence. They warned the world what was going to happen, uh, you know, and what was amazing to me, actually, was how many people didn't believe 
them uh, in, in the United States on both the left, by the way, and the right. There were people who didn't take what the Biden administration said seriously enough. There were people in Europe uh, as well as Ukraine itself. And uh, so, you know, Biden was strong on that. He's been strong in saying all the right things about Putin's aggression being countered. Uh, I thought the speech uh, laid that out clearly. What it wasn't was a kind of rallying cry for this new world of geopolitics that we find ourselves in. It was very Biden and the moment, I think, of America and insecurity. What did he what was his takeaway line about Ukraine and Russia? It was to Americans, we're all going to be OK, i.e. don't worry about nuclear war. Uh, that doesn't give us a framework for what could be a long haul confrontation in Europe between Russia and the West. And uh, so that's something, you know, to be determined. Can I say one final thing to you before you go? Yes, of course. Go get him. Go get him. <laughs> what does it mean? <laughs> what does it mean? I don't know what that meant. I thought it was a great and strong speech. And I think he came across as a good and unifying leader. But there was that thing at the end. Go get him. I don't know who that is, but I'm going to figure it out. And when I figure it out, I'm going to go get him. Uh, you know, hey, is it Putin? Is it you go Ukrainians? Is it, uh, you know, to his own Democratic Party? Is it to America? I, I guess it's it's Coach Biden. I think it's a, a version of up, up and at him. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know who the, who the them is in that phrase either, but I'm going to go get him. Go get him. Susan Glasser, thank, thank you so much for on short notice coming and talking to us about this very, very fraught and important issue. And I hope we'll talk again soon. Thank you, Preet. It's an honor to be with you. It's time for a short break. Stay tuned. Support for Stay Tuned comes from American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, a podcast from Wondery. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened, but soon a diverse group of abolitionists began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, not the senator, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. And in the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by those committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Facing terrible violence, retribution, or even death if caught, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states for those enslaved people who risked the journey, and even went as far north as Canada, where their freedom was assured. You can follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to this season of American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free, right now on Wondery Plus. Support for this show comes from Indeed. Imagine the perfect employee. Let's call her Jackie. Jackie is professional yet relaxed, punctual, friendly, meets deadlines, and just makes your job easier overall. But the search for Jackie can be long and tedious, especially when you have so many other things on your plate. Indeed wants to help you find your next Jackie. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
They leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day. So their matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. That means they can better connect you with your Jackie. And the listeners of this show can get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Ira Glasser served as executive director of the ACLU for more than two decades. Under his leadership, the organization grew to become the nation's leading force in defense of free speech. Glasser's unwavering support of the First Amendment saw the ACLU increasingly take on cases defending the most unsavory among us, including neo-Nazis and Klansmen, in order to preserve, for everyone, the right to speak freely. We discuss how Glasser, a trained mathematician, went on to lead the ACLU, why Bobby Kennedy urged Glasser to pursue a job in defense of civil liberties, and a documentary about his life and career called Mighty Ira. Ira Glasser, welcome to the show. It's so good to have you. Thank you. Good to be here. How are you? I'm good for an aging hippie, you know? <laughs> aging hippie. Are there a lot of those? Uh, well, there were a lot of hippies once, but not too many of them have aged well. Aged well. That's an interesting caveat. Well. it's an interesting edge. We all age, but not everyone ages well. Well, you've aged very well. Well, some people stop aging. That's not so good either. Right. I take your point. Right. That's, a, that's, a, yes. that's an excellent point. We're here. We're here. Started at the bottom, now we're here. Every day I look at the open pages, and I'm glad that I don't see my name there. <laughs> <laughs> that would be neat if you did, because it would be some write-up, I think. So I'm going to start off with, with what is probably a very easy question, or an easy answer for you. But my question is, within the Constitution, what is the most important right that Americans have? Well, not so easy. No, it's not so easy because I've always sort of been resistant to ranking rights, but I think it's probably fair to say that without the freedom of speech and without the, the freedom of assembly, both rights and codified in the First Amendment to the Constitution, without those rights, all the other rights would be very difficult to enforce because vulnerable people, oppressed people, subjugated people whether you're talking about blacks or women or gays or people organizing labor unions or whatever, they all start out from a position of powerlessness and vulnerability. And free speech is the weapon, the only weapon that they have to not only to protest, but to call attention to their plight and to try to gather support from other people in the country to remedy their plight. And if they're not allowed to speak, if they're not allowed to meet, if they're not allowed to distribute leaflets, if they're not allowed to demonstrate, then their subjugation becomes a secret that only they know. And it's impossible ever to change. So it's fair to say that freedom of speech and freedom of assembly and freedom of protest and freedom of dissent are foundational rights because it's very difficult to get access to all the other rights without those First Amendment freedoms. How about freedom of religion, also in the First Amendment? 
Well, freedom of religion was foundational in the 18th century when the First Amendment was adopted. It was foundational in the sense that the only real diversity, I mean, you have to remember that <laughs> that we call ourselves a democracy, but in 1789, when the Constitution was adopted and the country began, the only people who had a right to vote were white men who owned property. Blacks, of course, were slaves. American natives, Indians had no rights. Women couldn't vote. And even white men who didn't own property couldn't vote. So the only real diversity in the country was a diversity of religious beliefs. And so it was really important for minorities within the the polity, religious minorities, to have the freedom of religion or otherwise they would have been oppressed by religious majorities. So it was very foundational at the time because religious diversity was really the only kind of diversity that existed within that fledgling democracy of the late 18th century. Today, freedom of religion and keeping the government out of religion remains a foundational right, but it's not as critical to most minorities. It wasn't critical to labor unions. It wasn't critical to women fighting for the right to contraception in the early part of the 20th century. It wasn't, it wasn't. So, so it's, it's not, it's not as foundational now as it was in the 18th century, which doesn't mean it isn't important. It's still a critical right. But I think it's when you say that all social justice movements require freedom of speech in order to get off the ground, in order to make their plight known. That doesn't include religious rights these days in the way that it did in the 18th century. One more question about religion. You talked about keeping government out of religion, the Establishment Clause, separation of church and state. Is it my imagination or are there greater calls from people on the right, some of whom are running for office, greater calls to erase the separation of church and state, people talking about one religion. Does that, what, how do you, what do you, what's your reaction to that? Well, I think the Establishment Clause has been substantially weakened, mostly by the Supreme Court. The fact is, is that religious freedom is now being used as an excuse to deny other people other rights. The most notable examples, of course, involved women in the right to contraception and abortion. If you want to buy contraceptives and you go into a drugstore to buy contraceptives and the druggist says, oh, no, I have a religious objection to birth control, I'm not selling you that. The question is, whose religious right is it? Is it the right of the person who wants to buy the contraceptives or is it the right of the of the person whose religious beliefs say, I can't sell it to you? And it's a public accommodation. I mean, supposing they said, I have a religious belief that blacks are inferior, so I'm not going to serve you. Well, the civil rights laws wouldn't allow that. But if they say, I have a religious belief that the use of birth control is immoral, and therefore I'm not going to sell this to you, they often do have a right. And that's, and the Supreme Court has enlarged that right. And the, you know, the fundamental right to freedom of religion involves two kinds of rights. It involves one, what we call the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment, which says that the government cannot favor religion over non-religion, and it involves religious freedom, the right to exercise your beliefs 
but not in a way that denies other people their right to exercise their beliefs. So that, for example, if you look at the issue of school prayer, you know, supposing kids are sitting around in school, in, in high school, or in the school cafeteria and eating lunch, and some kids want to say grace before they eat because their religion requires them to do so, they have a right to do that. But if the school requires everybody in the school to say grace, you know, over the school loudspeaker systems, and that includes people, students who don't believe in saying grace, then it's their religious freedom that's being interfered with by the requirement that they say grace. So what you have to do is balance those two things so that the kids who want to pray before they eat have the right to do so. And the kids who don't want to pray before they eat have the right not to pray. And that's, you know, that's the line that you have to draw. Yeah, that's the problem with all issues when there are conflicts uh, in principles or in values and in rights. Yes. Balance, how do you balance? Can we take a step back and talk about you for a minute? I learned a, a good bit about you in the last number of days by watching a film, a documentary called Mighty Ira, which is about you. Yes. And one thing I had not appreciated about you, obviously I've known about you for a very long time, is that you graduated from college with a degree in mathematics. You did not become a lawyer, and yet you ran the civil liberty, the American Civil Liberties Union for some 23 years, which is all about litigating some of these issues that we're talking about. How does a math major, non-lawyer, come to that position? Well, you know, it's interesting. I was the fifth executive director of the ACLU since it began in 1920. And four of the five of us were not lawyers, including the guy who started the ACLU, Roger Baldwin. You know, law was, if you're looking to enforce the Bill of Rights, law is a major weapon, obviously. But it's not a weapon whose use is limited to lawyers. I used to joke that I represented civilian control over the lawyers on the ground that you couldn't <laughs> trust. You couldn't trust social justice to the lawyers any more than you can trust war to the generals. And, uh, you know, the basic rights that people get to exercise, most people exercising their rights in society are not lawyers. They understand that if they want to uh, go outside and hold up a poster that says something about a, about a politician, they, they have a right to do so. They know that without being lawyers. They may need a lawyer to help them enforce their right, but they don't have to be a lawyer in order to understand what the right is about or its importance. So, you know, the ACLU became identified with lawyers really during the period of the Warren Court years, from about the mid-1950s to the mid-1970s, when the Supreme Court, for the first and only time in its history, became very protective of the Bill of Rights. And therefore, litigation became a primary weapon. And so it became identified, over-identified, really, with lawyers. And uh, I almost didn't come to work for the ACLU when I was offered the job back in 67. Yes, I was going to ask you, you have a very fascinating story about the person who advocated that you take the job. Who was that? Well, that was uh, Bobby Kennedy, Senator Kennedy at the time from New York. And it was a conversation that I had with him because I was uh, editing a magazine at the time, Public Affairs, called Current. And this was, this was in the, you know, 1966, 67, somewhere around there. And, and you it, just called up and said, hey, Bobby, what should I do? Well, I, I, 
Yeah, right. And you you can get a senator on the phone just like that, right? And um, I wanted to come work for him. I thought he was the most fascinating uh, politician out there. I thought that he combined a passion for racial justice, which was for me the most important issue uh, growing up. And I thought he had a better understanding of that and a better passion for it than anybody else. So I spent a long time writing letters and calling the office and trying to get an appointment with him. You were stalking Senator Robert Kennedy. I was. I was. I guess I was. Well, that's your free speech right. And I, and I, years later, when I was at the ACLU and it was, uh, a relatively easy matter to meet with the United States Senator, I appreciated how really delusional I was at the, <laughs> you know, at the age of 28, thinking I could just write a letter and get an appointment. With but you it. weren't because you got an audience with Well, him. I was persistent. You know, the, the thing, the, the most, I learned later that the most important virtue in the fight for any kind of justice is stamina and persistence. And I just kept writing and I kept talking and I kept calling and finally, maybe to get rid of me, he agreed to meet. And I went down and I met with him alone in his office. He was getting a haircut at the time by the, by the senatorial barber. And I was sitting there with him in his office talking about why I thought he should run for president. And if he did, he was going to need more staff and why I thought he should hire me. I mean, it was the kind of, as I say, delusional arrogance that you can only have when you're 25 or 26 <laughs> years old. And, and, uh, and of course, he wasn't ready to run for president at the time, but apparently he was interested in me enough so that he urged me to keep in touch. And then he asked me, well, what else are you going to do if you want to do something more active than edit a magazine? And I said, well, I didn't know. I, I, I had an offer to be associate director of the New York Civil Liberties Union, which was the New York branch of the ACLU. But I wasn't inclined to take it because I wasn't a lawyer. And it seemed to me that the ACLU issues were narrower in scope than my interests. And he said to me, no, no, you're making a big mistake. You should consider that offer because the ACLU is a unique organization in American life. It's the only organization that really is radical in the sense that it goes to the root of what American values are about, which is the Bill of Rights. And I, I ended up rethinking it, and I took the job, thinking I would be there a year or two. And then when Kennedy announced about 14, 15 months later that he was running for president, I got back in touch with his staff to see if I could uh, reignite an interest in helping and joining the staff. And then, of course, he was killed in the middle of the primary campaign. And that's pretty much how I got to stay at the ACLU. Earlier in the conversation, you said that one of the reasons the First Amendment is so important and has been such a focus of your life is exactly because it is that freedom that allows certain groups of people to get the rights that they deserve, all the other rights that they are entitled to. And you refer to them as marginalized or disenfranchised. And I think you use the word vulnerable. Now, when you get to the issue of hate speech, so in, in that regard, the First Amendment is a shield and a protector of the vulnerable. But now when you get to hate speech and you say that that's okay also, and I understand the legal argument, does it ever bother you that hate speech is almost always directed specifically against the vulnerable? No, 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 I'll, no, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you why. It's not a legal argument. I mean, it ends up being a legal argument. 
But here again, I'm going to, you know, not being a lawyer, I'm going to make the political argument, the strategy argument. You could make the legal argument quite well, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> but, but, the, but here's the political strategic argument. The only important question, if you're trying to decide whether speech should be banned, is not what the content of the speech is. It's who gets to decide. Now, if you or I are in a position to decide which speech to permit and which speech to ban, then we would probably, I know I would certainly, permit, you know, all the social justice speech, all the speech I agree with. I have no interest in what the neo-Nazis speech is or what the Klan speech is. In fact, I hate everything that they say. And I think what they say is damaging. I think everything Trump said was damaging. I think everything Joe McCarthy said was damaging. Right, but you don't have to take those cases. In other words, the ACLU has a choice. I'm not, I'm not, I don't have a view on this, and I tend to agree with you, but just to play devil's advocate, you could decide as an organization, we care about free speech, and you know what? We're going to defend the, the free speech rights of the vulnerable. No, I don't think you can. Because, because it must be your view that vociferously and stridently defending the rights of people who hate Nazis and Klansmen and others, that in the long run, I take it, helps defend the rights of the vulnerable too. Is that the point? No, you can't do, I'll tell you why you can't do that. You can't do that because you can't go into court and argue that the government doesn't have the right to decide who gets to speak unless you're prepared to make that argument with speech that you don't like. I'll give you a real world example. This is the way the Skokie case arose initially. There's a place in Chicago called Marquette Park. It's in the southwest side of Chicago. And it's bordered on one side by a predominantly poor black community. And it's bordered on the other side by white, ethnic, very conservative uh, communities. And Marquette Park used to be, in the 1970s, a frequent place where demonstrations by both groups took place. The white ethnic groups would go into the park to demonstrate against school integration, against housing integration. Uh, this is right in the, you know, the peak of the civil rights movement. And civil rights groups would come and they would demonstrate for integration and for housing integration and schools integration. And they would clash. And the cops always had to come out and keep them separate. And the city of Chicago got tired of it one day. And they decided, all right, you know what we're going to do? No one gets to speak in, in, in Marquette Park unless you can post a $300,000 insurance bond in case any damage occurs to the park while these, these uh, demonstrations are taking place in conflict with each other. So in effect, both groups were banned because A, no insurance company would sell you a bond like that. And two, all these groups were poor and couldn't afford an insurance bond even if it were available. And, and the ACLU in Chicago regularly represented both of them from time to time. So after Chicago does this, this ban with the insurance bond, the Martin Luther King Jr. Association, which is one of the civil rights groups, comes into the ACLU office and says, you know, we want the right to demonstrate in this park the way we've always had, and we can. And 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 would you challenge this insurance bond requirement? Uh, because in effect, what it does is it bans us. 
So the ACLU takes the case. And in taking the case, it argues in court that the government cannot have the power to require posting an insurance bond that nobody can afford as a precondition of free speech. That's the argument that they make. Now, a little bit later, that case is filed. It's in court. The neo-Nazi group comes in to the ACLU offices and says, we want you to do the same thing for us, challenge the insurance bond. The ACLU says, we don't need to take this second case because if we win the case for the Martin Luther King Jr. Association, we win it for you, you see. And if we lose it, we lose it for you uh, because we can't make the argument that the insurance bond requirement is okay against the neo-Nazi group, but not okay for the Martin Luther King Jr. Association. We have to make the argument that the government cannot restrict anybody's speech by posting, making them post an insurance bond as a condition of allowing the speech. That's our argument. So if it, when we win it for the Martin Luther King Jr. Association, as I'm sure we will, we'll win it for you too. Well, the neo-Nazis uh, were not happy and they said, how long is this going to take? And as well, you know, litigation could take a long time. It might even take a couple of years before all the appeals are through and all the rest of it. So the neo-Nazi group decides, well, the hell with this. We're going to go and demonstrate in the suburbs where a lot of these people uh, who are proposing integration in the schools and, you know, live in the white suburbs. And where there's no bond requirement. And with it, well, right, and where there's no bond requirements. So they write a letter to 12 suburbs of Chicago saying that they want to come demonstrate against integration. And 11 of the suburbs ignore them. They just don't respond. The one suburb that did respond was Skokie. Why? Because Skokie was the home of a very large population of Jewish survivors of the Holocaust. And the idea that people with swastikas on their arms were going to come and demonstrate in their town was more than they could bear, understandably. So they went nuts. And they, and they, uh, now, you know, this was understandably not, so, right? Right, understandably so. So would I, so would you, so would anybody. Uh, and these, this neo Nazi group, you know, was not a powerful group either. They were maybe 12, 15, 20 people. They were all kind of lunatics and they really were not uh, a threatening movement of any kind. But the idea to somebody who had survived concentration camps and seen his whole family killed and it was the only survivor. The idea that there was going to be people with swastikas marching through their streets was impossible. So the town of Skokie responded by saying, no, you can't come. And then they convened their own city council and they passed an insurance bond requirement in Skokie, which had never existed before. They also passed a statute that said, you couldn't march in uniform in order to keep them from coming in with their Nazi-style uniforms. And ironically, that statute was then used later in Skokie against the Jewish war veterans who also marched in uniforms. So when they passed that, that prevented the neo-Nazi group from demonstrating in Skokie exactly as they had been prevented from demonstrating in Marquette Park in Chicago. And they said they were coming anyway. So then the town of Skokie went into court to enforce its own ban, which it had just passed, its own law. 
And the way in which the Skokie case got into court was not the neo-Nazi group going into court, not the ACLU going into court. It was the town of Skokie that went into court to enforce the ban. That case then became a parallel case to the ACLU's case for the Martin Luther King Jr. Association in Chicago with the same issue in both cases, namely, can the government restrict speech through the use of the requirement of posting an insurance bond? And that's how the cases got, in effect, consolidated. And the ACLU then took the Skokie case, which Skokie had initiated, um, because it needed to do so in order to protect the argument it was making in the Martin Luther King Jr. Now, that's why those kinds of things are inseparable. Unless you prepare to make the argument that the government can ban one kind of speech, but it can't ban another kind of speech, and that the government gets to decide which speech to ban and which speech to permit, which is way too dangerous because why would anybody want Donald Trump making that decision? You know, the speech that he hates is not the speech that you hate. So that's how the Skokie case got in court. Now, and eventually, in both cases, in the one we started in Market Park in Chicago for the Martin Luther King Jr. Association, and in the one that the town of Skokie brought to try to stop the neo-Nazis from marching in Skokie, both cases, we ended up winning, and the court ruled that towns cannot have cities, government cannot have the power to ban speech on the basis of requiring insurance bond requirements first, and that the government can't get to decide which speech to ban and which speech not to ban. And that's the way in which those two different kinds of speech get linked. It has nothing to do with the content of the speech. Oh, I get that. It has to do whether government ever, whether it's in anybody's interest to give the government the power to decide which speech to permit and which speech to ban. That's a completely and totally legally consistent argument and a strong argument because we have a First Amendment. Other countries don't have that. Right. My question, though, is, and and you've grappled with this, and we see some scenes relating to this in the documentary I mentioned, Mighty Ira, when actual Holocaust survivors who were angry at the sight or the prospect of people with swastikas coming marching in their neighborhood, when they complain about it and weep about it, and confront you about it, how effective is your legal argument to them? And how do you deal with explaining to them, with whom you're sympathetic, why you take the position you take? Very difficult. It's very difficult. You know, I made that argument that I just made to you, to all kinds of groups, including, you know, I made I went to synagogues and made that to groups of Jews here in New York. The most difficult thing, and the thing I never really did, I would never lecture a Holocaust victim on why he had to tolerate uh, somebody in his neighborhood wearing a swastika. I could never bring myself to lecture a black person in Mississippi on why he had to allow even a peaceful demonstration of Klan members in sheets and pillowcases marching through the streets where he lived. The pain that those people endured, the death that they endured, the injuries that they endured, makes the argument to them very difficult. It doesn't mean that it doesn't benefit them. And eventually what happened was interesting. 
the guy who's in that in the Mighty Ira film, who uh, Ben Stern, who I came to know only recently, who's now like a hundred years old, survived seven concentration camps. He was arrested initially as a teenager in Poland. His entire family was wiped out. He never saw them again. He came to America from a refugee camp after World War II. He survived the death march. He, you know, he got married. He had kids. He lived in Chicago, and eventually he moved to Skokie. And he was living there in the late 1970s, 1977, when the Skokie case erupted, when the neo-Nazis wanted a march. And the town of Skokie tried to, as I described a moment ago, tried to ban the, the Nazis from coming unsuccessfully. But they also told Ben Stern and his fellow residents in Skokie, just go inside when they come, close the blinds, and wait until they leave. And Ben Stern went crazy. He said later, that's what they told us in Poland. It's just, it'll pass. Just go inside and close your blinds and don't pay any attention and it'll pass. He says, I'm not listening to that argument anymore. It might not pass. It didn't pass. And he later said that he did something that he had never done in his life. He actually bought a gun. And he said, I hate guns. I'm anti-gun. But he actually bought a gun and learned how to use it because that's how fearful he was about the consequences of neo-Nazis in his neighborhood. And he had more reason than most. But he did something else. After, after we won the case for both the Martin Luther King Jr. Association in Chicago and the neo-Nazi group in Skokie, after we won the case... Ben Stern organized a counter-demonstration, which the town of Skokie did not want him to do. They wanted him to remain quiet. And remaining quiet was not something he was about to do. So he organized a counter-demonstration. I think he had like 50 or 60,000 people ready to come to Skokie to demonstrate against the neo-Nazis if they came. And in the end, though the neo-Nazis won the right to come, they never came. Yeah, <laughs> And they never came in part because Stern organized a counter speech that would have drowned them out. So they went back to Chicago. They went back to Chicago where they came from and organized the demonstration in Marquette Park, which was the thing that started this all. And there was so much publicity, there had been so much publicity about the Skokie case by that time that 100,000 people came out to demonstrate against them. And it turned out to be, you know, a disaster for the neo-Nazi group. You can clear something else for us. So the ACLU's mission and and your job, in part, was if a Nazi wanted to march in a place where other people could march and display swastikas, that's protected. If people want to say the N-word, in fact, in the same location, you hate it, you abhor it, but it's constitutionally protected. If those same people do that in the workplace, employer has every right to terminate them, correct? Well, that depends. Private employer. Yeah, no, I know private employer. That that depends on the context. For example, supposing somebody was sitting in a lounge in a workplace reading uh, Tom Sawyer, and somebody else saw them reading Tom Sawyer, and Tom Sawyer has the forbidden word in it. I'm talking about, just to make it easier, I'm talking about a similar kind of, you know, negative use 
sporting of a swastika on a sleeve at the accounting firm in, in a clear pro-Nazi, anti-Semitic way. Um, and I, I know there, there are probably hypotheticals at the margins, but, but, uh, but as standard variety racist at work or anti-Semite at work who's advocating those kinds of views in a private work environment, generally okay to be fired, right? Just wearing the swastika or harassing somebody? Yeah, how about just wearing the swastika? How about uh, wearing the cross? How about a Catholic wearing the cross who's hostile? Can that Catholic work in an abortion clinic? Going back to the swastika for a moment, <laughs> there are cases in which you're saying the ACLU could and should defend a, an, an accountant. Let's use the accountant example because it's, I don't know, kind of mundane, where the office may have, you know, general attire requirements, general requirements about how you interact with your employees. You're saying there's a strong case on behalf of the swastika wearer at the accounting firm? What I'm saying is that is that what you can't allow is harassment of one employee by another for any reason, for race, for gender, for political belief, for religious belief. But what I'm also saying is that if you have a rule that says nothing can be worn, which reflects a political or religious belief, nothing, nobody can wear anything, then that's, that's one thing. That's a permissible rule, I think. What if the swastika wear, I'll make it even harder uh, or easier from your perspective. What if you allowed somebody to wear a Trump button? I'm trying to use it. I'm trying to use a simple example that I think most people, I know it's based on content, but I'm trying to use the extreme example of a pro-Nazi, anti-Jewish, swastika-wearing person. For, I'll make it even more complicated. You know, not somebody who comes to the accounting firm, but somebody who marches in a Nazi march wearing a swastika on his private time, that comes to the attention of the employer. Does that employer have a right to fire the anti-Semite or not? No. Under no circumstances. Well, I, 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 haven't, I, have, I believe that happens all the time. And I haven't seen the ACLU rush, rush, to, rush to represent them. Let me, give, let me make it harder for you. Let me give you a real case that happened in 1973, 74 at the ACLU. That was during the period post-Watergate where there was a movement arose to impeach Nixon, as you will recall. We were very primary in starting that movement. We ran an ad calling for the impeachment of Nixon because of his violation of civil liberties uh, and his enemies list and his wiretapping and all the rest. We ran an ad in September of 1973 calling for impeachment before the campaign for impeachment really got started in Congress. And during that campaign, from the fall of 73 to the summer of 74, when Nixon resigned as a result of the congressional impeachment process, we ran a big campaign supporting impeachment throughout New York State. And by that, I mean, we went into congressional districts, we held meetings, we made speeches, and so forth. And it caught fire. And, you know, there were people supporting it. There were people opposing it. And one day we get a call from a guy who lived in upstate, midstate New York someplace. And there had been a impeachment demonstration in his town on a Saturday. 
He was a factory worker, working for some factory in town on Mondays through Fridays. The factory was closed on the weekend, so he was on his own time on Saturday. And he participated in this impeach Nixon camp parade through the middle of town on a Saturday, off duty, off work. And his boss happened to see him in this parade. He comes in on Monday and he's fired. Permissible? I don't know all the facts. What happened? Well, he was fired and he he asked for our help. Now, of course, you know, if he had been fired for a, a religious demonstration, we might have been able to help him because there was a statute that said you can't fire somebody for religious reasons. But there is no statute that says you can't be fired by a private employer for political reasons. So he was out of luck. Right. So why isn't the swastika wearing accountant also out of luck? That's not, that's not religion. That's exactly right. Okay. All right. That's exactly what I'm saying. I was worried earlier. No, no. Uh, what I'm saying is, is that when you ask me, is it all right for that person to be fired? And I said, no, it's legally, uh, there's nothing much you can do about it. But no, the ACLU would oppose the firing of somebody uh, who was wearing a swastika in the street on Saturday and came to work and there was no job-related reason to fire him, but he was fired because the boss didn't like his politics. Um, well, it's one thing not to like, I mean, I think some people would say it's one thing not to like someone's politics. It's quite another thing to knowingly have in the workplace a proud Nazi anti-Semite. And I think, I think most- well, who's supposed to decide that? The employer, the private employer. Yeah, and if the employer, and supposedly the employer is an Orthodox Catholic and decides that he saw somebody in a pro-abortion demonstration on Saturday and he hated that. I know that, that you are an absolutist on the First Amendment, and I appreciate that with respect to- No, I'm not being an absolutist. Public employers. I'm not being an absolutist. What I'm saying, what I'm saying is- But it's not necessarily the case. I mean, look, if, if I said on this podcast- the N-word in a pejorative way, I would expect Vox Media to fire me, and I wouldn't expect the ACLU- What do you mean in a pejorative way? Yes, well, but that's what I'm saying, Ira. If I said it to a black person, meaning it as a slur, first of all, I would never say it under any circumstances, even in the context that you describe, because I don't think it should, that word should come out of anyone's mouth. Whether that should be prohibited Legally, whether there should be that should be a fireable offense, I leave to other people to decide. But but my hypothetical is: suppose I use it in the worst way you can, in a pejorative way to a guest on the show, and I call that person the n-word. I would expect to be fired. Everyone would expect me to be fired. My team would expect me to be fired, and they wouldn't expect the ACLU to run to my defense because it's a private employer and because of what I said. Is that a problem or not? Yes, I think it is a problem. I think it is a problem. First of all. I think it's an illusion when you keep saying N-word. You think you're not saying the word, but when you say N-word, everybody, that word that you say, think you're not saying, you are saying. You're just using an abbreviation for it. Everybody understands it. The word is in your head when you say N-word. The word is in the head of everyone who hears it. It's, a, it's delusional. With respect, Ira, I think that's a little silly. There are other ways I could make a reference to a thing that is not the thing itself. I could say, you know, I don't have to use the first letter of the word. I could say, you know, what if it's the case that I use, you know, the worst slur that a black American can be called? Are you going to say that's, that's the same thing as saying the word because I'm referring to the nature of it so people understand what I'm talking about? Uh, how do you discuss the word without mentioning the word? How do you do that? Yes, but discussing the word by using the first initial of the word is not the same and doesn't have the same import and doesn't have the same attack value 
and doesn't have the same disgustingness attached to it as using the word. Saying those are the same things, I think, I think is a little far-fetched. They're not the same. Well, I think it's delusional to make that distinction. When you say F you, what do you think people mean? It's just a translation. Well, you should talk to the FCC about that because they have, they have different rules for when people bleep. I'm allowed to be on the radio, Ira, and I can say the F word and they bleep it and you have the F and that's fine. If they don't, ble- they if they don't bleep Lenny it. They sent Lenny Bruce to jail, Preet. They sent Lenny Bruce to jail for using those words. I get it. But so, so don't cite the FCC to me. I'm saying the law recognizes and normal people recognize a difference between saying the full word and bleeping it. That's, that's not the same, is it? I think it is the same. I think it communicates exactly the same thing. I think when, when you say the N-word, everybody knows what you're saying. It's just like saying, you can't say white, so I'll say blanc. I'll use the French word instead. Everybody knows what you're talking about. I'll use a different analogy. I would find a Tarantino movie much less enjoyable if all the curses were bleeped, even though I know what they're saying. It's a different thing. It's a different experience. That's, you know, it's my view. You have your view. I have mine. Whether it's enjoyable or not is not the issue. The issue is whether it's whether the government can punish you for it. I'm saying it's not the same, that the impact is different, and it's not the same. The specialness of the First Amendment in our country, and that actually settles a lot of this because you have strong, as, as you have said many times in the Skokie case, the law was very much on your side. And the issue was the politics and the optics and, and people's emotions about it. The other thing that was fascinating in the movie was the friendship that developed over time between you and William F. Buckley, with whom you disagreed, but he had you on firing line a lot. Yes. And you debated, and you took him to a, to a baseball game, which is shown in the movie. He's a guy who, unlike some other conservatives, didn't care too much for sports, and in particular didn't know much about baseball. Was there ever a thing on which you think you shifted his view or he shifted your view? Or did you help ref- each other refine your own arguments in some way? Well, you know, one of the reasons I took him to a baseball game is the same reason I took him to Coney Island to Nathan's for lunch one day instead of to a fancy restaurant in Manhattan when we met. And that was because my take on Buckley was that he was a very kind person in person. I was at his house a couple of times for dinner and the way he treated um he had a a spanish cook and he was exceedingly kind spoke to her in spanish um my take on buckley was that he lived in a bubble he was a, brought up as a very rich isolated kid i thought he never saw real people so i took him to a ball game and i took him to nathan's in coney island and it might have been a you know delusional on my part, but I thought that if he had more contact with real people, the personal sympathies he showed for the people he did relate to would be reflected. I don't know if that ever happened. I may have affected his position a little bit on drug prohibition, which we both opposed, but I think he was leaning in that direction before we ever discussed it. He... And I agreed on a number of free speech issues. But 95% of the time that I was on his show over the years, we were on opposite sides. And um, he was graceful about it. He liked debating it. 
but it was a little bit more of a game for him than it was for me. And um, there's more performance. There's more performance in it for him. I think so. I think so. Well, he was a TV guy, and you, you were actually overseeing the litigation of cases in court. Yeah, and I was, you know, I was in a movement. I was fighting for people's rights. I, uh, it was not okay to me that people took some of the positions that they did. <laughs> I once was invited to dinner at his at his house in Stamford, Connecticut, a uh, very fancy place, you know, right on the water. And I come walking in a few minutes early, coming up from Manhattan, and was greeted by his wife, who I had never met at the time. And she was very gracious and uh, said, oh, I'm so glad to meet you after time, you know. But tell me, Mr. Glasser, why are you so mean to Bill on television? <laughs> and I looked at her and smiled. And I said, well, Pat, I said, he says so many terrible things. <laughs> You really need to do something about that. And, you know, it was that kind of a play-action game almost, but it was never a game for me. You know, I always regarded myself as a warrior for social justice and for the rights of people who were vulnerable and subjugated. And while you debated people in polite terms in public, it was never just a, a play for me. And so, you know, I, though we became close as adversaries, I was, there was never a second when I wasn't aware of that adversarial distance between us. And, um, and that was, you know, true of a lot of people I debated over the years. I mean, Jerry Falwell in the moral majority I debated, but he was a very, he was very friendly in person, but the things he stood for injured thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. And I was not about to be forgiving of that. I think the other thing that goes on in modern times is it's not only the case that people disagree with each other and you or I might think that the other person's point of view is terrible, that often it's the case the other person's point of view is BS in the sense that they don't even believe it. Yes. That they're making arguments. There's a lot of bad faith now. Yes. Whether it's about Ukraine or it's about religion or it's about freedom or it's about the coronavirus. At least my sense was when you and and William F. Buckley were having a debate, he believed the arguments he was making and he was making them in good faith. Yes, I think that's I think that that's correct. And you were too. And there's a lot less of that now. And it becomes very hard to like your adversary and respect them when they're not only disagreeing with you, but disingenuously disagreeing with you. Well, you know, I once debated back in the early 80s, Jerry Falwell's second in command in front of a large audience of, I don't know, 1,200 people or so and debating the moral majority's position and versus the ACLU's position on a range of issues. And when the show was over, we're, we both go backstage and the guy comes up to me and smiles, sticks out his hand and says, well, we gave him a great show, didn't we? <laughs> yeah. And I had to restrain myself from just punching him. <laughs> I mean... That goes beyond speech, Ira. The punch is a step beyond speech. That's right. The punch goes beyond speech, but it is symbolic expression. <laughs> it's just not the kind of symbolic expression the First Amendment protects. <laughs> um, you've been very generous with your time, Ira Glasser. Thank you for your service. Thank you for your voice. And thank you for spending time with us. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate these are issues always worth discussing.
My conversation with Ira Glasser continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To try out the membership for just $1 for a month, head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guests, Susan Glasser and Ira Glasser. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tadashore. The senior producers are Adam Waller and Matthew Billy. And the CAFE team is David Kurlander, Sam Ozer-Staten, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Chris Boylan, Sean Walsh, and Namita Shah. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.